So tonight, we are in uh, the second volume of Samuel, in, in 2 Samuel, uh, or Samuel part two, however you, uh, however you like to, to think of it. Uh, we saw, uh, we looked at 1 Samuel uh, about two, three months ago at the end of October, and, uh, and now here looking at the second half of that and picking up with the life of David. Now you'll see uh, on your worship guide or, uh, or, or I guess a note sheet, whatever you'd like to call it, uh, as you came in, I've titled this sermon, When You're the Man. And Second um, Samuel follows the life of David uh, much more even intimately, or, or at least through the rest of his life, uh, picking up from where we left off at the end of 1 Samuel. Now, 1 Samuel ended with Saul, the king, dying, and David not yet uh, having become king of Israel. Well, David will become king of Israel in the course of 2 Samuel. He'll become the man. He's the, he's the dude. He's the one that is leading uh, God's people. And, and in being the man, he, he does some good things, and he does some really, really bad things. He does some things that, that, that are not wrong for us to imitate, and he does some things that we should really, really try hard not to imitate. And we're going to look at those things uh, tonight, but <clears throat> I've just sort of titled uh, this sermon, When You're the Man, almost in a precautionary way, so as to say, when you're the man, when you're in a position of authority, when, when God has given you responsibility for other people, uh, we really need to do very, uh, uh, we do well to, to be mindful of how God would have us to, to lead and to steward the authority and power that he's given us. Because we'll see in David's own life that that power, that authority can be used for good in the lives of others and the lives of God's people. And that power and authority can also be abused for our own, uh, for our own personal, uh, 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 excuse me, personal needs or personal gratification in a way that is utterly sinful and detrimental to ourselves and to the people of God. So let's just dive right in. Second Samuel. Uh, the author is the same as the first volume of First Samuel uh, in that... Uh, it's very likely the prophet Samuel, or at least the, the first book, the second book of Samuel, probably written by somebody else because Samuel dies midway through 1 Samuel. Uh, there's no recorded author here, but 1 Chronicles 29, verses 29 and 30 imply that Samuel wrote, the prophet wrote at least some of it. Um, uh, as we saw last time, the prophet Samuel's death is recorded in 1 Samuel 25. So someone else must have written what followed uh, in the whole volume of 2 Samuel. So we don't have a, a named author for this volume uh, of Samuel, uh, likely some unnamed person, maybe a person in David's court or someone who came after him later. The date of the writing is uh, very likely the same as the first volume. Uh, the events of both first and second Samuel take place, we know, at the end of the period of the judges, about a thousand years before Jesus. And so the date of its final composition was likely uh, uh, sometime uh, uh, before the kingdom of Israel was split into two uh, after Solomon's death. And the latest date for the final composition of first and second Samuel is probably sometime around 925 BC before the kingdom splits. Now, if I were to just to summarize for us 2 Samuel in just a few sentences, I would do it this way. That 2 Samuel continues the history of Israel's, Israel's request for a king and the results of that request. We remember in 1 Samuel, the people wanted a king so they could be like the nations all around them. Their first king was Saul, and he was really the, the king that they deserved. He was not a very good king. Uh, he's a, a guy with good intentions, but terrible follow-through on anything. Um, and, and now in 2 Samuel, we'll 
we'll, get the, we'll see the king, uh, not so much that Israel deserves, but definitely the one that will be helpful to them for, for seeing how God would have them to be as a people. Uh, we saw the first volume of Samuel uh, detailing the, that meteoric rise of Saul as the first king of Israel with a 40-year downfall. And the second volume of Samuel, Samuel focuses intently upon David, the king who would succeed Saul. Uh, the book itself highlights David's great generosity and honor, as well as his deep sin and his heartfelt repentance. Uh, this this uh, volume of Samuel, Samuel uh, zeroes in, focuses in really tightly on David, uh, both those admirable and imitable parts of his character and those uh, dishonorable and, and sinful and even regrettable aspects of his character. There are kind of three major themes uh, that, that, uh, or, or things of focus to, to look at in the course of this book. The first is God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. Uh, we looked at this two Christmases ago when we were looking at the uh, Christmas through the eyes of the, the covenants or through the lens of the covenants of the Old Testament. This covenant that God makes with David to give him a uh, kingdom that will last forever, to uh, cause one of his offspring to reign on the throne over his people, uh, over a kingdom that will not end. We'll look at that in brief tonight. Then we see two other themes, and you have these there in your guide, the danger of sin and the blessing of repentance. Uh, David sins several times in very serious ways in 2 Samuel. But at every point, David also repents in, in ways that set us an example for what repentance ought to look like. And so we'll see some of those things as we work through uh, this book tonight as well. Now you have Second Samuel as we consider it in the scope of redemption history. We know that redemption history is summed up by these four words or these four movements throughout Scripture: creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Creation being Genesis one and two. God creates everything that we see and know, and uh, he he creates Adam and Eve, our first parents, places them in a garden. He creates them without sin, but we know that they, of their own choosing, do sin. They eat the fruit that God has forbidden, and they inaugurate what we call the fall, uh, the the brokenness, the cosmic brokenness uh, in all of creation that results from sin. Now, the, much of the Old Testament and certainly all of the New Testament is focused on uh, redemption, how we are rescued from sin, God's plan to save us uh, from our treason against him. And then we know uh, from the final pages uh, of scripture how God is going to consummate all the, every, he's going to bring everything, uh, 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 make everything right at the end of time. He's going to bring everything into right relationship with him. Uh, some things will be brought into right relationship with him in positive ways as we are um, uh, finally and eternally in his presence. And, and God will make things right with him in a negative aspect, if you will, in that at the end of time, he will leave all of those who have never trusted Christ, who are apart from him, to, to their own destruction and separation from him in hell. God will set all things right. He'll, reveal, he'll pull back the curtain on everything to show everything as it truly is, and all that needs to be done will be done at that time. Well, 2 Samuel, in the scope of redemption history, uh, sits squarely again in this, the, these middle two movements of redemptive history, both fall and redemption. So you can maybe circle those if you'd like to try to place that in the course of the narrative. Uh, we, we see much uh, in the way of the continued effects of sin in David's life and, and, uh, and in the lives of those around David in here, but we also see the, the, the glimmering hope 
of redemption around the bend, particularly uh, in the covenant that God makes with Samuel and also in the way that, or the covenant God makes with David, excuse me, and also in the way that David is repenting of his sin and seeking forgiveness from God. Second Samuel is the same kind of literature as First Samuel. It's historical narrative. And so like other books of historical narrative, there's not always a lot in the way of instructive material. Do this, don't do that. But much in regard to God's character and dealing and how God deals with people. There's a lot in Second Samuel about, uh, we, as we learn from Samuel, uh, David, excuse me, I keep making that, uh, I keep calling David Samuel. As we learn from David's life, uh, things to do and things not to do, we don't necessarily learn those through propositions Positional statements. David's not saying, go do this, don't do that. Uh, Sam, uh, the author of Samuel is not telling us that either, but we can make inferences from the, the way that people's actions uh, affect others around them or their own relation to God, either positively or negatively. So as you read Second Samuel on your own, which will take you probably an hour and 15 minutes to an hour and a half if you're going to do that in, in one sitting, you can ask yourself these kinds of questions, and these are familiar to you. Ask yourself, what is this text telling me about God and his character? What can I learn about who God is and what he expects of, of his people or his creation in, uh, in this text? Ask yourself, what is this text, what is this passage revealing to me about God's relationship to Israel or, or especially to his, to, to his chosen king, David? And we can even push that a little bit further and say, you know, what is, and ask that question about the church. What does this reveal about how God reveals or how God relates to the church? Ask yourself finally the question, what does this text reveal about how God deals with people, with individuals, specifically me? Uh, what, what are patterns in my life that are, are maybe similar to David in a positive way that, that I can take some encouragement from? What are some patterns in my life that are similar to David in a negative way that I need to be encouraged to repent of, right? So we can see the characters in 2 Samuel and in some ways hold them up as a mirror to ourselves to see how, how, how we're doing and how we're relating to God. So let's go ahead and jump into the text itself. We're going to look at the text in three movements tonight. Uh, first of all, we're going to look at uh, just in summary form, chapters 1 through 10, then chapters 11 through uh, about 19, and then we'll look at uh, some other uh, themes that pop up in several uh, um, uh, dispersed places throughout the book. So let's look first at Second Samuel chapters 1 through 10, a section I've called, You're the Man. Like, you the man. And, uh, and here I've subtitled it, David's imitable character. The good things David does that we can learn from uh, and, and, uh, and at least be encouraged by. The first several chapters of Second Samuel are very important to the overall depiction of David. Now, uh, for the sake of time, we'll not spend a whole lot of time here, though uh, uh, for these chapters are, are fairly self-evident in what they're doing. They are showing, they're communicating to the reader the honor, generosity, and blessedness of David as king. Let's look at these just briefly. First of all, David's honor. David is an honorable guy in Second Samuel. After Saul's death, David will not immediately be named king. In fact, he'll reign first as king only over Hebron, uh, over the, the uh, uh, portion of the, uh, of the kingdom known as Judah. He'll reign over that as king for seven and a half years, while one of Saul's sons, whose name is Ish-bosheth, um, 
don't name your kid Ishbosheth. Uh, you could if you wanted to, but everybody's going to make fun of him. But one of Saul's remaining surviving sons, Ishbosheth, will reign over Israel. He'll continue to sit on the throne in Jerusalem. But then after Ishbosheth is murdered, David will reign over all the kingdom of Israel for a combined 40 years. So seven and a half years as king only in Hebron, and then uh, 32 and a half years uh, after that as king over the entire kingdom for a total of 40 years. These early chapters, though, show the abiding sense of honor that David has. You'll recall the several instances in 1 Samuel when Saul is chasing after David, trying to kill his enemy, David. Uh, And and though David has opportunity on several occasions to kill Saul, one, uh, one time in a cave, another time in his camp at night when everyone's sleeping, David relents from killing Saul every single time. He never takes full advantage of this opportunity to suddenly rise to power. David's honorable action towards Saul comes from what what I think is his deep respect for the Lord and for the Lord's anointed leader. Several times we read David saying in 1 Samuel, how could I raise my hand against the Lord's anointed? God has chosen this man. Who am I to, to, to put him to death? Such is David's love for the Lord and his respect for the Lord's anointed that he even protects the reputation and avenges the honor of Saul long after that king was dead. In chapter one, David uh, will learn of Saul's death from a survivor in Saul's camp. Now, the messenger that comes to David tells David a story of Saul's death that contradicts what we read in 1 Samuel 31. It's an obvious attempt by this messenger to tell a lie, a false story, to get into David's good graces. Well, David's the next guy in charge, and so I'm just going to say whatever I need to say to, to uh, you know, be on the right side of the new king. The man who comes to David says that he came upon Saul on the battlefield, mortally wounded, and that Saul asked him to strike him down so that his enemies wouldn't kill him. So as his story goes, he did just that. But we know from 1 Samuel 31 that that's not what happened, that Saul actually uh, gave his sword, uh, uh, fell on his, on his own sword rather than being killed um, uh, by his enemies, and his enemies came later and stole his body away. But we read... David doesn't know all of these details. He just knows the, this false story that this messenger has come. But we read how David responds to the death of the king in such an undignified and disrespectful way. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. There we read, David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I'm the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. And David said to him, how is it that you were not afraid to put, your hand, to, to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Why did it not strike fear in your heart to kill the king, even if he asked you to? And David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. David cares about the reputation and the honor of of God's chosen king. And as much as a knucklehead as Saul was at times, David still respects the Lord's choice. And he knows that it is is, uh, infinitely disrespectful to, to treat the Lord's anointed that way. So David, even after Saul's death, Uh, out of uh, just wanting to honor Saul because David himself is a man of honor and who respects the Lord, seeks to avenge uh, Saul's honor even after he's dead. Then later in chapter four, some other of Saul's own own tribe, Benjaminites, undertake to murder the son of Saul, Ishbosheth, who was king in Israel. 
They're thinking maybe, you know, we can put this guy to death and then, uh, and, and, uh, you know, avenge, uh, you know, our own whatever misgivings about who Saul was. Uh, we find out, we learn from the text that these men are not necessarily fans of David. They're not necessarily trying to get in David's good graces so much as they just despise Ishbosheth. And so one day as Ishbosheth is taking his afternoon nap, these guys steal into his room, they stab him in his sleep, and they cut off his head. And thinking this will play into their favor with David, they take to David the head of his adversary, Ishbosheth, as a trophy. Hey, David, look what we got for you. To which David replies this way in chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. David answered uh, Rechab and Banah, those are the two guys who, um, uh, who killed Ishbosheth, uh, his brother, the sons of Rimmon the Berethite. As the Lord lives, David said, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his own bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men and they killed them and cut off their heads and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. David is an honorable man who seeks to honor and respect the reputation of those who have gone before him. David respects so much the Lord's choosing of of kings that he is unwilling even to give the slightest hint that it is okay to kill the Lord's anointed. David is honorable. David is also generous. Let's look at David's generosity. Perhaps nowhere better in 2 Samuel do we see the generosity of David than to the son of his dear friend Jonathan, who is the son of Saul, Jonathan left behind a son who was crippled as an infant. His name was Mephibosheth, another tongue twister of a name that I don't recommend you name your children. Though most of Saul's other sons had been killed or died or whatever, David sought to do some kindness still to Saul's house, still wanting to honor, to respect the reputation of of Saul. And so we read in chapter 9, verses 6 through 13, these verses, David's interaction With Mephibosheth, beginning in verse 6. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face, and he paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show reward for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and he said to him, All that belong to Saul and all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him, and you shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. And so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. David doesn't owe anything to Mephibosheth or to any of, of Saul's descendants. But out of his love for Jonathan, out of his respect for Saul, he seeks to do some generous act for those remaining of the house of Saul. And so he takes in Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson, and treats him like one of his own. 
David is an incredibly generous person with all of the authority, all of the privileges, all all of the resources that he has been given by God. He uses that to bless others. We see finally in this first section of uh, 2 Samuel, David's blessedness. We know already that David was anointed by Samuel to be king of Israel in keeping with the Lord's command. In this way, David is deeply blessed by the Lord. It is a blessing to be called to lead God's people. But God goes a step further still to bless David in even greater ways. As David becomes king over all Israel and finds himself in his luxurious palace, he looks out and laments the fact that the ark of the Lord is still in a tent made of leather and wool. And so David intends then to build a temple for the Lord. But before he can implement his plan, the Lord intervenes and and says to David in chapter 7, verses 8 through 16, Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, this is the Lord speaking to Nathan, who will speak to David. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So David says, I want to make you a house, Lord. I'm going to make you a temple. Lord says, no way, but I'll make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established. In accordance with all these words, accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Here, God promises to David an offspring that will come from him, a a son who will sit on his throne and reign forever, a promise that we know is ultimately fulfilled in Christ, who Matthew, the gospel writer, traces his lineage all the way back to David, calling him a son of David, rightful heir to the throne. Matthew, the gospel writer, will spend so much of his gospel proving that Jesus is, is king of kings, is Lord of lords, that he's God's chosen Messiah and Redeemer, this son of David. David is blessed by God, not just because he's king over Israel, but because God, through David's lineage, will bring the king of kings and Lord of lords to reign over all. What a blessing to receive. Now, the best parts of David's life and character his uh, honorable conduct, his generosity, his response to blessing from God. All of this in his life comes straight out of what I find to be a deep and abiding understanding of who God is. David knows who he is precisely because he knows who God is. David knows how to comport himself as king in, in in his better circumstances because he knows who God is as holy and how God would like him to be, uh, would like him to comport himself. God is gracious and merciful and just. And David, knowing that God is these things, desires to be those too. 
So wondrous is God who protected David and carried him along all through David's conflict with Saul that even when David attempts to honor the Lord for his faithfulness, that same God outdoes David in his intent to bless. David is the man that God has chosen to lead his people. You demand, David. And as such, David embodies all the best qualities that a godly king can have. We can then look at David in these early chapters as an example of how to use authority and influence that God may give to us in a way that honors God and also earns the trust and respect and gives blessing to those that we have charge over. We can learn from David's honor, uh, honorability. We can learn from his generosity. We can learn from his response to God's blessing. How we who have authority over others, even if our only authority is over the children in our house uh, or, or others that we are maybe discipling, whatever the case might be, we can learn from David in, in, in the best ways in these earliest chapters how to use that authority that God has given to us. Well, very quickly, the wheels fall off of all of it in 2 Samuel 11 through 19 and in chapter 24 as well. A section that I have uh, called, You Are the Man. Not you are the man, but you are the man. The caution of David's sins. Certainly no survey of 2 Samuel would be rightly done if we don't heed the caution of David's many and serious sins. The larger portion of this book, in fact, is concerned not with David's success and integrity, but with his horrid sin and the consequences of them. We have first, for example, in chapters 11 and 12, his sins of adultery and murder. In 2 Samuel 11, verses 1 through 5, we read this. In the spring of the year, when the, uh, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, his uh, general, and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is, this not, is not this Bathsheba, the, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. And then he, she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. In the verses that follow these first five verses of chapter 11, we find David, and this is a familiar story to all of us, trying to cover up his sin of adultery, of sleeping with another man's wife, by having Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, brought home from the front lines of battle so that he might spend some time with his wife to cover up David's sin. But Uriah is, turns out to be a more honorable man than David at this point. And Uriah, even though he's brought back from the front lines, won't sleep at home while his troops are on the battlefront. He sleeps outside the king's doorstep. David then sees his only course of action to cover up this sin of adultery with Uriah's wife as arranging for Uriah to be killed in battle. He has Uriah's uh, company set to the very, very front line of all the battle, the harshest point of action so that Uriah will be killed. This action, this command of David to send Uriah to the very front of the battle line so that he might be killed to cover up his sin causes not only the death of Uriah, but the death of many other soldiers as well. Don't miss what happens in this chapter. David is both adulterer and murderer in the first degree. Not only in heart and in thought, but in actual deed. David conspires to have a man killed. People go to jail for a long time for that. Following all of this horrid sin, 
David is confronted by the prophet Nathan with a parable. And we read that parable in chapter 12, the first few verses. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said, there were two men in a certain city. Here he's telling a little parable. One rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives, and in your arms, uh, gave your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And as if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son for you did it secretly, but I'll do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David's an adulterer and a murderer and God deals with him sternly. David's sins of adultery and murder are not the only sins he commits in this chapter. He also commits the sin of unjust negligence. And his sin of unjust negligence begins a a series of events that will unfold over several chapters and have many sort of uh, offshooting consequences. Now, chapters 13 through 19 of 2 Samuel are the longest uh, contained or consistent narrative portion of 2 Samuel. And it all comes out of David's inability to appropriately deliver justice, even among members of his own family. Chapter 13 of 2 Samuel tells a horrible story of how one of David's sons, Amnon, who becomes infatuated with his half-sister Tamar, conspires to rape her. Without question, Amnon's actions deserve the harshest penalty, not only because what, he's do- what he does is incestuous, but because his forcing of a woman to sleep with him is utterly reprehensible as an offense against the image of God and his half-sister Tamar. In short time, though, Tamar's older brother, David's eldest son, Absalom, finds out about what Amnon has done, and he takes the matter to the king. He goes and says, Dad, this is what happened. My idiot half-brother raped my sister. 2 Samuel 13, 21 gives us David's response. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But that's all. That's all. His anger is never turned to justice for Tamar. His anger is never turned to punishment for Amnon. And because of his inaction, because of his unjust negligence, Absalom then takes matters into his own hands. The chapters that follow tell us of how Absalom conspires to have his half-brother Amnon murdered. And to escape judgment himself, Absalom flees Jerusalem to a neighboring kingdom while David mourns the death of Amnon. In time, Absalom will be brought back to Jerusalem. 
but not back into the king's good graces. And so out of spite, Absalom will take to the streets of the city to take over the kingdom by mob rule. He'll sit in the city gates and and distribute justice as though he is king and win the hearts of the people. Added to that, Absalom is a good-looking man and a wise guy. Not a wise guy, but a wise guy. And the people of Israel seem to like him well enough to to change their allegiances and to call Absalom king in defiance of David. This turn of support forces David out of the city and ultimately into hiding. His life is in danger now. The people have turned against him. So one day while David is trying to figure out how to regain his kingdom against Absalom and his ragtag army, in a strange turn of events, Absalom gets stuck by his beautiful, luxurious, covetousness-inducing hair in an oak tree and is left hanging by the scalp. He's riding on his mule on his way from A to B and his hair gets stuck in a tree. That rhymes and it didn't mean to, but he gets just left hanging there. Eventually, some of David's uh, soldiers and messengers of uh, Joab go, uh, go out and they see Absalom hanging by the hair in the tree. Uh, that's just a funny sight as I say that out loud. Just see a guy just kicking there in the tree. Well, word eventually gets to David's general, Joab, and Joab... Uh, uh, hearing uh, uh, the word of the messengers that Absalom's hanging in the tree, he goes, are you kidding me? You guys had a free shot at the enemy of the king and you didn't take it? They're like, well, we just didn't know what to do. Joab says, forget it, I'll take care of this. And Joab goes out with three spears of his own and kills Absalom while he's dangling there in the tree. Now, when David finds out about Absalom, his son and now enemy's death, he mourns deeply and, and rightly so. But in short order, he is rebuked by his general. Joab comes to David in chapter 19, verses 5 through 7. Uh, uh, yeah, 5 through 7, and says this to David. Joab came into the house of the king and he said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines, because you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you, David. You have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today, I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now, therefore, arise, get up, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. The king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. Indeed, God's promise of the sword never departing David's house because of his sin with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah has come to full fruition in, this, in these horrible chapters, 11 through 19. One of his children, one of his sons takes sexual advantage, sexually assaults one of his daughters Another one of his sons conspires to kill that son. And then that one son, Absalom, becomes traitor to the king, turns the whole city, the whole, the whole nation against uh, the rightful king of Jerusalem. And then his own son is killed, hanging disgracefully in a tree by his hair. David mourns the death of Absalom. But Joab rightly points out, dude, do you even get what is going on? I get you're sad for your son, But there's a whole bunch of us that have put our lives on the line against your son who is trying to kill you. Are you kidding me? 
Cry for your son, that's fine, but pretty quick, you gotta get up and act the part of a man. You gotta do what you haven't been willing to do before. You need to go and deal justice in the city gates. You need to take, uh, uh, you need to be assertive as king of Israel. It's enough time has passed for you sitting down doing nothing. David's unjust negligence in the situation of Amnon and Tamar leads to a long string of horrible, horrific events in his home and in his family, and he is the only one to blame. We see finally in chapter 24, David's third serious sin in 2 Samuel of assessing his own strength. At the end of this book, a story is sort of tacked on to David's narrative. It's a story of David taking a census. David has moved at some point as king when he has amassed several military battles uh, battle victories to number his troops to see just how great an army he has built. Now, the Bible does not say precisely why God finds this counting of troops to be sinful, but God does find it sinful. And we could safely surmise that God's anger comes from David looking to his own strength as a king and not to God from whom David has received all of his successes. Remember what the Lord said to David in chapter 7 in his covenant with David, verses 8 and 9? Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. David says, I want to count my soldiers. God's done all these great things for me, but I want to count my soldiers. I want to see how strong, just how strong I am. Again, after this happens, Joab, his general, rebukes him. And rebukes his sin of not trusting, and, and the, the sin of uh, David not trusting in the Lord is evident. A plague comes upon the people and remains until David repents. In all of this, David's adultery and murder, his unjust negligence, his, his false assumption that he and, him, he, he and his own ability to build an army was, was strong in and of himself. Know this that sin is deadly and bears serious consequences. That's why God says the sword will never leave your house because sin is deadly and bears serious consequences. David's adultery and murder bring God's judgment upon his own house in a way that leaves blood spilled in the king's palace time and again. David's negligence to dole out judgment leads to the death of two of his sons and to many others. And his resting in his own strength brings a plague upon the people of God. Here I would encourage you, I would exhort you, don't be like David. Flee from temptation. Look on sin and see with clear eyes the poison that it is to your soul and the severe consequences it brings to your life. Looking at chapters 11 through 19 and chapter 24, don't be like David. But we don't want to end there because the narrative of 2 Samuel doesn't end there. It doesn't end with David's unsuccessful and sinful attempts to do what he thinks is right. It actually ends, it leaves us with a different taste in our mouth as we see David, a man after God's own heart. We see David's repentance. David's sins are heinous. In some ways, they appear even worse than some of Saul's sins. If we really just hold them up right next to each other, some of the things that David does uh, put some of Saul's sins to shame. But God does not remove David from the throne like he did Saul. So what's the difference? Well, the difference is to be found in the orientation of David's heart. David, when confronted with his sin, is repentant and takes responsibility for his actions. After being confronted by Nathan about his adultery and murder, we read in chapter 12, verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. 
And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. We read further in Psalm 51, a prayer of David's repentance in which he says to the Lord, against you, Lord, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. When rebuked for counting his troops and assessing his own strength, David says in his heart in chapter 24, verse 10, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. David is a man after God's heart. It's part of the reason God chose him to be king. We know that God knew David would sin in all of these heinous ways. And just as, but just as God knew before uh, ordaining that David be king, even, even though we know that God knew David would sin in all of these heinous ways, we also know that God knew that David would set an example for the people of Israel of repentance, of what it looks like to own our sin, to take responsibility for it, and to place ourselves at the mercy of God who alone can have grace and extend mercy uh, and forgiveness to us. And so just as surely as we should see the sins of Israel's king and say, don't be like David, so also should we look to his humble acts of repentance before God and say, be like David. Sin is serious. We don't question this. But we also know that God desires to make us right with him if we will humble ourselves, if we will repent of our sin, and if we will turn in faith to him. So when looking at David and his sins, know that those are not imitable characteristics in David's life. But look also at David's repentance and ask God to give you a heart like David's that delights in repenting. In Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, David writes this, You, Lord, will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. And the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. So when you are the man or the woman, when you're in a position of authority over others, power and influence over other people's lives, how will you use it? How will you steward it? Will you use your influence to honor God, to please him, to lead others into ever closer relationship with him, setting an example of faith and repentance? Or will you use your power and authority and influence for your own gratification, for your own profit at the expense of others in sinful pursuit of your own desires? I pray that we would learn from David's example and how the Lord teaches us, even through David's repentance, to use our influence, our power, our authority in ways that seek God's glory and the good of those that are around us. All of this is not even the best part of 2 Samuel. The best part of 2 Samuel, I think, is how it points us to Jesus. We see two things related to Jesus, or, or two, two pointing signs, if you will, to Jesus in 2 Samuel. First of all, Jesus is the king who reigns forever. We saw in chapter 7 the covenant that God makes with David to cause one of his offspring to sit on his throne, and God will establish the, his kingdom forever. And so we read in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, these words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is that son of David. He is that offspring that will sit on the throne forever. We read in Matthew 21, verse 9, the crowds that went before him as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem the week before he'll be arrested and crucified. The crowds went before him and those that, were follow, that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Who are they praising? The son of David. 
And that, that phrase, son of David, comes with all of the implications that the son of the king comes with. He's the next king. He's the rightful heir. He's the one that's going to sit on the throne. There is all of this messianic hope and expectation bound up in what these people are saying as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the king. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And then we know about Jesus from what he revealed of himself to John in Revelation chapter 19, verse 16. That Jesus Christ, when he comes again in power and authority as king of the cosmos, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If there was ever any question about who the son of David that sits on the throne and reigns forever is, let that question be forever settled here tonight. That king is Jesus. Jesus is the king who reigns forever. Jesus is also the propitiation for our sins who makes a way for forgiveness and reconciliation with God. We see in David, as he's confronted with all the the sin that he has in his life, the right response of repentance, of turning from his sin, of entrusting himself to God and to his grace. David even knows that burnt offerings and, and animal sacrifices really aren't enough to cover over the weight of his sin. He, he knows he needs something more The Bible and its narrative points us ultimately to Jesus, who is that better sacrifice, who is that final sacrifice for sin. He is our propitiation, we read in several places in the New Testament. We'll look at these in just a moment. Propitiation is a word that that means two things at one time. It means, on the one hand, the removal of our sin. All right, just removing the, the guilt of sin that we have. But, it, but it's more than that because only the removal of our sin is a word that we would call expiation. But propitiation does two things. It removes our sin and it removes God's wrath against us. It reconciles us with God. So when Jesus dies on the cross, as we read this morning in 2 Corinthians 5.21, when God makes him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become in him the righteousness of God, that's propitiation. This is what we read about who Jesus is and what he purchases for us on the cross, this son of David, king of kings. Romans 3, verses 22 through 25. Paul writes, there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a means of covering our sin and taking away God's wrath, a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. John in his first letter says in two different places, how Jesus is our propitiation, the one who takes away our sins and reconciles us to God. He writes in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, My little children, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We have someone who, who goes to the Father on our behalf, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Are you looking for hope? Are you looking for redemption? Are you looking for forgiveness and reconciliation with God? Look no further than the son of David, king of kings, Jesus the Christ. Finally, John says in 1 John 4.10, in this is love. This is how love is defined. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
see the blessing that the son of David, king of kings, lord of lords, is to all. Not just that he rules and reigns over the cosmos, but that he has given his life for our sin and raised his life back up again for our justification with God. Read 2 Samuel. Don't be like David and be like David. And all the while, look to Christ, who is the perfect king who never fails, the perfect king who gives his life for his people.